0: Hello everyone, welcome back or welcome to the Human Condition Podcast. This episode is going to be a little bit different. I had a wonderful conversation with a friend of mine, Karan Gera, a blues musician, a great follower and admirer of jazz music, but most importantly, a great storyteller. We discussed the story of jazz, its history, its origins, evolution, the different styles, and some wonderful, wonderful musicians that it has produced over the course of the past century. So I hope you enjoy it. Good to see you, man. Thank you for joining the podcast. I'm really glad that you did because I think among all my friends, you're probably the most enthusiastic person about jazz and music in general, and maybe even the most knowledgeable. So thank you for joining, man.
1: Pleasure's on mine.
0: Right. I think a good point to start off is that I think we both think that Jazz and the evolution of jazz was more than just a music movement. It was a cultural movement of the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And what makes it so great is that it was the intertwining of cultures, two cultures that were so formidably different and wide ranging. I think um, in anthropology, the term they use is syncretism which is the blending of cultures that previously existed separately. And man, was that a great syncretism or what? <laughs> it was just a beautiful cultural movement. So I think that's something that we both agree on. Yes. Indeed.
1: It is something we can sufficiently agree on it's uh, it's it's incorporation into the mainstream it's uh, it's subsequent uh, it's subsequent uh, route by which it became a significant part of world culture by which it became a significant part of of music of social interaction of society itself has been integral and it has been a defining factor of the 20th century
0: mm-hmm. one of the one of the most defining factors i would say Of the 20th century in in terms of music and culture that, uh, that it's affected. So let's start off at the very beginning. I think, and it is a matter of fact, that jazz owes itself to the Black man and the misery or the blues of the Black man. And I know that you are a blues man, you're a blues musician, and you have great affinity towards blues. And jazz also owes a lot of its early origins to blues music. So how did, that, how did that start off? Maybe you can start off there. Well, I guess
1: um, if you have to really, really look back at how jazz evolved as a concept before it became a musical art form, you have to understand the mindset of the black man living in the late 18th century, uh, sorry, late 19th century and early 20th century. This was a movement that had just gotten out of the deep wrenches of slavery. And they were just trying to find their footing amidst a period of reconstruction, mm-hmm. a period where, uh, where black music was supposed to become a lot more than it ever was. It had its roots in the blues, as you have mentioned, the blues, which came from the Deep South, from places like Memphis, from places like uh, the Mississippi Delta. And more importantly, especially when we talk in the context of jazz, from the great city of New Orleans, Louisiana. We had these great uh, these great American heroes who had been working so hard to get so many Black people uh, towards, uh, towards freedom that a lot of them used to use their slave haulers and they used to use their church music, their gospel music as some sort of a conduit for them to communicate with each other. It was also a way of secret communication with each other. A classic example of this was the early song, Wade in the Water, which was it it seemed to be a code on how to get to the underground railroad what that later evolved into was the black man who the white guy had taken away everything from his his freedom his his liberty to live his 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 chance at building his own family on his own terms but they couldn't take away his soul and when you talk about the music that jazz came from the blues that it originated from, the uh, the ragtime and Dixieland dancing that it came from, it came from a Black voice trying to express itself outside the realms of the bounds of what it had been held back behind by. And uh, if you start at the early, early 20th century, when the blues was just taking off, there came an early bifurcation where the music became less uh, guitar-oriented, and more uh, holistically oriented in terms of rhythm, in terms of tone, and in terms of multiple instruments being brought together. It was kind of a beautiful harmonization of the colonial influence of Western instruments and the... African traditional folk influence of their hymnals, of their folk songs. And when they just amalgamated together, they created the truly American and and truly original art form that is considered American classical music, which is considered uh, jazz. Jazz uh, was very different from the blues in that regardless of whether you wanted to consider the uh, more popular culture oriented vocal styles of jazz, or even the more free-basing, free jazz ranges, the bifurcations of which we will explore later. There was one central theme: no rules, no boundaries. Improvisational had to flow as the music progressed in its most natural form. Okay. But there would always be one central, common theme that would bring the music full circle, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But as it became a little bit more, uh, as it became a little bit more popular. Jazz, unlike the blues, which was always being played in juke joints and and rag joints and, and, and little bars, jazz became, and unfortunately, that's how the economic situation was, jazz became the conduit by which the black man gained legitimacy in the white man's eyes. Um, Any jazz musician who made it to the stage was more likely to be viewed by white people as one of them. Of course, it is a truly it is a truly a horrid aspect of humanity that that is explored here of systemic and intellectual racism. But a sad reality was that in the early days, at least it was only through jazz that black people could actually convey whatever was on their mind to the masses and not just to their own people. When you, when you consider where it came from and when you consider, you know, the instruments, the horns that became, a, that became an essential part of, of the genre and it's French and English and British and all those other influences combined with African music, you see something that is so unique and so incredible that it is often very difficult to classify, which is why you don't usually classify jazz based on uh, certain types or forms, but based on the musicians that made those forms successful
0: right and i think you made a good point there about the amalgamation of the african music and you can also hear the african influences in like the early blues and early jazz especially in the rhythm section and i want to read a little passage that i read in uh, in the new york times where the whole process was almost ritualistic and this was very well written by this guy says an elderly black man sits astride a large cylindrical drum using his fingers and the edge of his hand He jabs repeatedly at the drum head, which is around a foot in diameter and probably made from an animal skin, evoking a throbbing pulsation with rapid, sharp strokes. A second drummer, holding his instrument between his knees, joins in, playing the same staccato attack. A third black man, seated on the ground, plucks at a string instrument, the body of which is roughly fashioned from a calabash. Another calabash has been made into a drum and a woman beats at it with two short sticks. One voice, then other voices join in. A dance of seeming contradictions accompanies this musical give and take, a moving hieroglyph that appears, on the one hand, informal and spontaneous, yet, on close inspection, ritualized and precise. And I think that's a beautiful example of how it's I kind could. Of, I could picture it. Exactly right, <laughs> A- and the best part—you think this is all happening in Africa, but this was in America. This was happening in the late 19th century in America, in the in the fields, in in the plantations of America, where where all these black men were, you know, expressing themselves through their music of blues and well, maybe not jazz till later ages, but definitely the blues. And we talk about America especially because that's where New Orleans or maybe like the southern states were where some of these music, blues and jazz, you could say originated, but it's I think it's far too simplistic to portray one place as the place that has started jazz. But definitely we could say that America as a place was instrumental in the evolution of jazz music. And some would say that maybe this jazz could not have taken place in any other place except America. And and that it was inevitable that jazz came through, broke through in America because of so many factors that came together because of the black subculture, which at the time composed of 10% of all Americans were like black people. And they were a minority and the music that they played in the beginning wasn't mainstream music and the blues and jazz kind of made it to the mainstream stage, which is absolutely incredible, given that they were a minority group. A lot of factors had to come together to to for the evolution of jazz, right? Like social, political, and cultural factors had to be at the right place at the right time. And that happened to be America. So maybe you can... Talk about why America like what was the deal with America and why the jazz developed it? well, I guess
1: I guess you could chalk it down to the cultural amalgamation of what took place in America at the time, because um, you have to remember that this is as as a former biomedical researcher, I like to think of things in terms of the human body mm-hmm. so if the jazz uh, so if jazz itself as a form of music was a baby, um, it was certainly born in New Orleans or close to New Orleans, but its genetic code uh, from its parents is far stretched behind through whatever we've discussed thus far. But when you look at uh let's let's put a let's put a more concrete time point on this at the moment when jazz uh, started to become commercialized, started to enter the mainstream, which was the nineteen twenties, which became known as the jazz age, the, the, with, the roaring twenties.
0: With Duke Ellington and like Benny Goodman and people like these, yeah? Even before them, even before them, we're talking early
1: Dixieland styles, ragtime styles. Mm-hmm. This was taking place in the local juke joints, where you had where you had people who were on the streets in these huge brass bands. May, maybe, maybe you could music. explain
0: what a juke joint is.
1: So juke joints were basically these little these little hangouts where uh, you know daily wage people, um, daily wage earners used to come. And they used to just, they used to drink a lot, they used to smoke a lot, and they used to dance, they used to gamble, they used to engage in all of their vices. White people used to call them salons. Black people called them juke joints. Because these juke joints were primarily operated only by black people. White people would run their salons. They could decide who came in and who came out because there was still segregation, even though there wasn't, quite, uh, there wasn't quite still slavery, but there was still segregation. Women couldn't vote. The black man did not have the same rights as the white man did. Some might say even not even today, but that's a different story. Hmm. Uh, but it, it was in the juke joints that people from all across plantations and sharecropping and, and animal husbandry, former slaves and those which were not uh, and those who were not slaves, those who were just immigrants, you had those people as well. People who were not white at all, people who are from the South, from the Latino cultures and the Latino populations would just get together in a place which was not bound by the horrible, horrible Jim Crow laws. This was one sanctuary of the working man where Jim Crow couldn't get his long hands, where where nobody could encroach on the cultural fluency and the cultural fluidity of the place, a place where ideas were shared without the, without the worry of what the white man might be listening in on, what the former masses would be listening in on to, 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 to make it sound cruder. So that's where jazz originally came about. But then, you know, once once it became a part of the, the New Orleanian movement of, of, of culture, uh, and, and how it became something that would become a significant part of an evening where people would go to work, and then in the evenings they would sit, they would switch on the radio, they would listen to a record which featured a jazz musician, or they would go to a concert hall with their wives or their girlfriends or their spouses or whatever, and they would and they would witness these concerts. At the time that it became a part of the mainstream, at the time that it transitioned from the juke joint to the concert hall is where we start defining the official ages of jazz. A time when Dixieland was then truly, truly evolving. At a time when people like the Duke, who was who was who was trained by perhaps one of the greatest pianists that that has ever lived, I believe I believe we are talking about Dinah Washington. I could be wrong. Dinah Marie Washington, I believe she she played with Duke Ellington. Uh, she was she was one of the piano teachers who who learned classical piano, who learned classical piano, but then ended up teaching people uh, the techniques that would then become known as jazz. So you had, you had Duke Ellington on one end, who, uh, who, who as who everybody very well knows, was an incredible pianist. And on the other end, you had Louis Armstrong, who brought a whole different dimension to the trumpet and the, the, the rhythms and percussive rhythms that came to be known as the jazz rhythm in the form of this particular form of music that then started getting propagated throughout the country. One thing led to another and the music became popular. And then as uh, the industrial growth of the country started, started kicking in and then people started moving to the new city of Chicago because that was the new industrial city where all the jobs are coming in, all the blues musicians started going there, all the jazz musicians started going there. And suddenly you had little communities building up in Tennessee, in, in, in Louisiana, in the state of New York, in the state of Massachusetts, and in the state of Illinois. As it started to uh, go across, as it started to cross these colony lines or state lines, the music itself started to evolve. New Orleanian jazz would obviously a lot, be a lot more French-derived uh, French because uh, Louisiana was heavily populated by French settlers. Mm-hmm. Conversely, you would have Chicago uh, you know, derivatives of jazz more inspired by Chicago blues in another way you would have what came to be known as the new york jazz scene a lot more orchestral which featured a lot more string instrument heavy people as well as the uh, horn sections which would become more elaborate and then you had then then came the whole um, the whole concept of jazz can be not just uh, a plethora of dozens and dozens and dozens of musicians playing together but also maybe just three trios and quintets and quartets.
0: I think we're skipping like decades for that to happen. When you talk about jazz becoming mainstream, maybe even ragtime music like Scott someone like Scott Joplin, you could argue that he was the one who at the time, you know, sold a lot of records of his ragtime music and kind of made it popular, but still it wasn't in the mainstream and at that time even till the 1920s, I think maybe Benny Goodman was one of the first people who accommodated white people into his band. It was still like, you know, segregation was still present in those times. And it wasn't all too well accepted by the people of America. And as a student of philosophy and, and like someone who's interested in cultures and anthropology, it makes me think, like why there's got to be it can't be just the music I mean the music has been there since like hundreds and thousands of years what what exactly changed in those circumstances that kind of started appealing to people especially young people because a lot of this Dixieland and swing music was music for dancing right and I think the one key point was that At that time, at the end of the 19th century, the Western world was kind of parting its ways with Victorianism, right? Like the Victorian era was ending. And in the Victorian era, ideas like self-control, order decency were heavily emphasized on. People wouldn't have sex or sex was basically confined to the marriage bed and even nudity wasn't allowed. Even the feminist movements at the time were kind of only restricted to care for prostitutes and stuff like that. Women weren't really allowed to come out and express themselves and and go to bars and drink. So I think the end of the Victorian era appealed to a lot of young folk, especially because now they could go drink at a party and and dance to uh swing music one thing changed though Mm -hmm.
1: one thing changed though
0: in 1920 there
1: was a little thing called the 18th amendment and when the 18th amendment came about everything changed prohibition prohibition was the focal point the singular how do you say tipping point which caused the fulcrum to switch completely this was now making people jittery all over the world. There were people all across the continental United States who were working longer jobs, who were now working industrial manufacturing jobs, and they needed a way to unwind. Suddenly, the entertainment industry became everything that people wanted to handle. You had Atlantic City popping up. You had New Orleans becoming even bigger than it ever was. New York City started getting uh, influences from everything ranging from African folk to, uh, to you know, to Cuban music to, to French vaudeville influences. All of them just sort of came together and manifested in what was then earlier known as big band jazz. And big band jazz always had one thing in common. The band leader. So you had band leaders like Count Basie, or you had band leaders like, you know, Duke Ellington, or you had people like Benny Goodman, like who you mentioned, uh, you had people like the early, the, the earliest influence I remember of, of the Frenchness in jazz was because of the clarinet player Sidney Bechet. Sidney Bechet was, was one of the first people who was able to bring an entire jazz band together, centered on the compositional variation that comes from a clarinet. So as starters, these people started playing music that was directly known as a derivative of ragtime in Dixieland. Once it entered the bars and once it entered the concert halls, it was then known as swing, because right. of the traditional dance movement that accompanied it with, and it was always uh, and it was always fast-paced, and it was always you know um, it was it was always very energetic, and very full of pump. And every once in a while, those songs would slow down. Those songs would slow down, and they would suddenly be more derived towards the walls, to, to you know, towards the walls derivatives. At every stage of its cultural. Of its cultural voice, jazz was always compared to classical music. The early listeners of jazz were like the early listeners of rock. They considered themselves rebels. They considered themselves outside the norm of, say, Schubert or Mozart or Strauss or anybody else. But little did they know that What they were creating then, what what band leaders like the Dorsey brothers were were, were creating then, would be something that would be equally centered on rhythm, as well as on soloism. Mm -hmm. The amalgamation of these things came together in an incredible fashion and exploded onto the scene in the 20s so when you talk about the 20s you will talk about swing music you will talk about uh, and and this would continue even after the 18th amendment was repealed in the in the 21st amendment and that begins ni- the 1930s where jazz started becoming a part of Recordings when it started becoming a part of vinyl recordings. So then you had people like Louis Armstrong, who at that time had just transitioned from uh, a side soloist in a band. Uh, I think he was in Fletcher Henderson's band. And then he became his own band leader. His movement into jazz was a focal point because until that time, it was still pretty much just instrumental. Mm-hmm. Then this guy brings his unique... A gruff little imperfect voice and makes it sound beautiful and right in parallel with that when people suddenly realized that 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 classical derivatives of music could be recorded in jazz form that operas and plays could have music associated with them which could be expressed in jazz form so came the rise of the female musician. I am, of course, talking about the jazz derivatives of female musicians such as Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, but then evolved into the jazz age age, such as Billie Holiday, uh, such as uh, Dinah Washington, uh, and, and so many other female jazz musicians who suddenly started gaining center stage and the music would also become... Uh, that which surrounded them. The two people that made this possible uh, were the Gershwin brothers, George and Ira. They had created so many Broadway musicals by that time and they they'd written operatas and their music started getting adapted into jazz. No better example of somebody who could sing their music so incredibly that she became a great songwriter and perhaps one of the most crucial crucial figures in jazz and one of Louis Armstrong's long-term collaborators and the Fitzgerald. Mm. This was a transition where jazz was not just about swing or ragtime, but it also became about the one thing that keeps humanity going
0: romance. Romance, yeah. Romance, and love.
1: So that, that particular age was what catapulted jazz into the mainstream. The moment it became about romance, the moment you had Ella Fitzgerald, you know, swinging, swinging her her dainty body across the stage and singing Pennies in the Street, Moonlight in Vermont, um, I've Been Going Crazy About You and so many other classic songs. That was when people knew, okay, you know, this is a lot more accessible.
0: Mm.
1: Now, all of a sudden, jazz was the popular music. Mm. Jazz was the in thing. Jazz was was the new flavor of the month, flavor of the week, flavor of the year, flavor of the decade. We note this time as a huge uptick in uh, theatrical performances directly linked to chamber music which became incorporated in jazz but as we went further as we went further beyond the 1930s and we slid into the 1940s then we then we came into a transition where no longer would jazz music just be about big band, but the evolution of what it could be—the evolution of small band jazz and solo-driven band, uh, jazz and composer-driven jazz—which would then become kind of the most, the most clear focal point of jazz that we recognize as an inherent tribute to its in, uh, to its innovative and improvisational nature. Right. Of course, if one was to talk about that one could never begin a conversation without uh, people such as Charlie uh, Parker, January, Reinhardt, exactly. yep. Lonnie Johnson mm-hmm. and the two people that they influenced in great entirety. One of whom was Charlie Parker. And the second of Dizzy? whom was, <laughs> pardon? Hmm? Dizzy, Dizzy Gillespie. Yes, the second of whom was Dizzy Gillespie. Because at this time, you suddenly had key figures whom every every upcoming jazz musician wanted to perform with, because they knew if they performed with them at least once, several other doors would open for them. Mm-hmm. These were the few pioneers, such as such as Charlie Parker, such as Dizzy Gillespie, and the the effervescently curious piano players, such as uh, Duke and Thelonious Monk, who who brought in a lot more complicated polyrhythms and complicated patterns, which then started becoming the two major bifurcations of jazz as we know them. Hot and cold, right. hot and cool, mm-hmm. bebop and cool, bebop and ballad, right. bop and ballad, hard bop and ballad. All of these bifurcations came from people such as Max Roach, people such as Dizzy Gillespie, people such as Bud Powell, lonius Monk, Charlie Parker because they all brought in their own styles Mm -hmm. suddenly jazz was not just you know some pop singer being uh, you know singing about going to bed on a Friday night after a long uh, seance through the park or some sort of uh, chivalrous affair with a woman no no suddenly suddenly jazz became very academic suddenly only the geniuses could follow it and some would argue that that might have disconnected jazz a lot more from music. I disagree because the blues and jazz started to influence each other in cross sections even more, especially because jazz became more concrete in its uh, base of the blue scale, of the blue notes and the blue note scale, which I think you would be able to better elaborate. So I think the next key era of jazz, which we would obviously gloss over people like Frank Sinatra or Doris Day or Louis Jordan because everybody everybody knows about them. Everybody knows about their popular or pop derivatives of jazz. But what then later became known as the genre of music that has now had so many bifurcations and so um, so many different babies of its own around the world was defined by people like Charlie Parker. Yeah, I think, so when, when you talk about bebop, that is what I would consider the true spiritual beginning of improvisational jazz. And there's nobody yeah. better to talk about bebop than you.
0: Right. I would actually go a step back and say that maybe improvisation came much later when jazz started becoming that the instrumental mastery and improvisation started with someone like Django Reinhardt. And I'm a... yes a massive fan of Django. And we're going to talk about, I I think we have like this last section of favorite artists. And I'm going to just bring it up that Django Reinhardt is my all-time favorite jazz player. Like he is just, I mean, the man had two fingers on his left hand, for God's sake. He played the fucking guitar with two fingers. That's amazing. That's just, and the the way he played arpeggios and like the whole thing, improvisation, amazing. His his collaboration with Stefan Grappelli, the whole era was for emphasis on instrument and the mastery of instrument, which might have caused a disconnect with people because jazz did go down in the 1940s and the 1950s. You could attribute that to maybe something like the world war that was happening at the time, but but it was certainly a movement that was a significant one in terms of how profound it was. And the essence of jazz at that time was upon improvisation and solos which brings me to the point of self-expression which is the key when you know how that
1: self-expression came about though
0: Mm -hmm. it came about when all of these big band players would
1: then retire at the at the end of the night after a long show but then just a few of these musicians would stick around Mm. They stick around a little longer, so the juke joints they keep the, you know, they keep the clubs, they keep the concerts all a little bit. They 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 keep them open a little bit longer for, for these musicians to just spitball and synchronize and harmonize and jab Mm-hmm. When they started jamming, they started experimenting, they started experimenting with, with, different, with different chord progressions, they suddenly realized that the entire song did not have to follow the same rhythm. Mm-hmm. They suddenly realized that the entire song did not have to follow the same, the, you know, the same chord progression and the same verse, course, uh, course, chorus verse, chorus verse um, uh, pattern, and that they could break out of these barriers and make it something more. That was where people like Django Reinhardt succeeded. That was right. where people like Charlie Parker could introduce, could could literally induce seizures mm-hmm. in the minds of lesser consumers, so to speak, yeah. of jazz. I think jazz gained its true true resurgence in the fifties, uh, likely as you said, as the recovery from depression and recovery from the you know the two great wars. You see, at that time, you already had people leaning more in towards the Bebop age. You had new figures popping up everywhere with each their different style. Records suddenly started becoming a huge thing. Record stores, record companies, a executives started going nuts. Everybody wanted to sign new record players.
0: Mm-hmm. And, slowly, and Bebop was hot at the time. Which was, Bebop was hot. Yeah. And it's and funny, I, how the name bebop came about and it's how it sounds. It li- it's literally how it sounds when you like scat sing. It's like, yeah, like bebop. Yeah, right? exactly. That's, that's exactly. fantastic. And yeah. I,
1: I, think, I, I think you have to, I, I think the next age that one must talk about with jazz and a lot of people do not even bother listening to anything that comes after this age. Is the age which could be, uh, you, you know how, how like the birth of Jesus Christ is zero AD. Mm-hmm. This is, in my opinion, the zero
0: AD of jazz. The release of the album, kind of, kind of blue, of course, in nineteen fifty. See, you knew it. I knew it.
1: We all know it. This was the album that you could walk.
0: I up mean, to it's, it's the most soul years. jazz album of all time. If I'm not wrong, you, you could
1: walk up to a four year old. You know, you could walk up to a four-year-old, and you could, and, and 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 they would be asking you, "Daddy, Daddy, what is jazz?" And you would say, "Son, I'm gonna play an album for you Kind of Blue." And this album brought in together a sextet, which was never before seen. It was kind of basically the first supergroup where you had. Miles Davis leading the band on the trumpet. You had Cannonball Adderley on the alto sax. You had, uh, you know, the great Bill Evans mm-hmm. on on the piano. There was one more pianist. Who was the other pianist on uh, um, on, on, kind on, on Kind of Blue? There were two pianists on Kind of Blue. I remember Bill Evans did not do all of the tracks on Kind of Blue. Um, was I, it
0: Herbie? Herbie came much later, right? Herbie oh, yeah. Herbie
1: came much later. Herbie was part of the second quintet. Um, uh, you had you you had Bill Evans, Wynton Kelly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Wynton Kelly, Wynton Kelly, and of course, uh, you had the the you know the great bassist Paul Chambers, yeah. who essentially featured on every major great bebop album from the fifties to the sixties until he died, mm-hmm. and then of course. My favorite jazz musician, of course, the legendary, <laughs> Mr. John Coltrane. You know, uh, Sonny Rollins and Hank Mobley and John Coltrane once joked about this once in a, in a very obscure interview. They said, well, you know, we were, uh, we, were, we were, you know, we would get down near the sea, you know, and uh, we started visiting all these juke joints and everything. And uh, we were too afraid to play the alto saxophone because Charlie Parker, he basically cornered the market on that one. So uh, all of us just kind of decided simultaneously at the same time. Just kind of looked at each other
0: and said, "All right, well, looks like we got to go to the tenor saxophone instead." And
1: then suddenly there came the rise of all of these great tenor sax players. And look, John Coltrane—he had he had a career before kind of blue, but kind of blue became the birth of the great John Coltrane. Essentially, he was what Miles could bring out in him. Nobody else could bring
0: out it. What well, Miles would bring out it. We can't just talk about jazz and ignore Miles Davis, right? He, he is like, he is the God fucking father of jazz, man. And purely because also he is probably the greatest trumpeter of all time, but also because how great he was in collaborating and influencing jazz music. Because look at all the careers he's launched, Miles. Like Chick Corea, who unfortunately very recently passed away, Herbie Hancock, and John Coltrane, and and all these people, all these amazing artists that Miles, who Friends knows? Robert. Yeah, you can name a lot of these people who maybe if they weren't collaborating with Miles, wouldn't have come into the limelight as much. But Miles was just, he was just A maestro. And I remember people saying that Miles, his recording would also be improvisational. He wasn't, he wouldn't have like a rehearsed version on the album and something else while he was playing live. He would just come into the...
1: Yes, they had these early days where they would just walk into the studio. Um, exactly. Kind and, and of new recording sessions yeah. were actually a good example of this. Where, And if you've seen the live versions of some of these songs, you'd know exactly what he's talking about because you would have miles, you would walk in and, and he exactly knew whatever he wanted. He, he, he would talk to each of the musicians and he would say, well, uh, you know, uh, this, is, uh, this is what I'm looking for. You, you go come right in, right on the, uh, on the second note. And uh, you go pick up uh, bop, 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 this impro- this improvisation there, yeah. and then and going to come in, and uh, he's gonna do his bit, his solo. You take it a rise here, and uh, these are the kind of notes we need you to focus on. So he would just give them kind of these outlines and that mm-hmm. raspy little undertone, yep. and they all knew, they mm-hmm. all knew. So so what? So what? Just starts with mm-hmm. starts with this simple rhythm so paul chambers already knew what what he was going to do where he was going to start and miles davis just just starts slowly progressing just it just starts teasing the listener going like oh you want me to tell you a story mm-hmm. guess what here's the story so what and then Miles somehow just, just starts adding one by one each player into Good. the entire four. Man. Now it's not just Miles and Paul. Now it's everybody. It's, it's Cannonball. A, it's a
0: great it's, conversation it, altogether.
1: And, and, and then Jimmy, Jimmy Cobb is, doing the, is, is mm. suddenly changing the rhythms and everything. And suddenly Miles reaches a crescendo on his, on his trumpet. And then suddenly, boom, slips yeah. into the background. Enter John Coltrane, picks up right where he leaves off and just sustains the entire energy through kind of taking you on a journey. Yeah. So what is perhaps one of the greatest Beginning tracks of any album mm. ever, because it leads into a great exploration of improvised modes, of improvised chord progressions, of of of, of the blue scale. Songs like, like All Blues or Freddie Freeloader mm. are, so, are so melancholic, yet very playful. Yeah, but by far my favorite song on that record, and the most defining song for me on that record, is one that brings out a very sentimental feeling flamenco sketches. Oh, yeah, you see, at this time, Miles Davis was very taken with his girlfriend at the time, who had featured on several of his albums, including, yeah. And she had featured on uh, Someday My Prince Will Come on the album cover. See, she loved, she loved Spanish music a lot. So he wanted to incorporate Spanish music into that. Flamenco Sketches was one of those earliest works, which would then become the basis of the inspiration for what would later be known as Sketches of Spain. Mm-hmm. So this, this, this album had so many hints as to where the grassroots was going. Mingus was able to take an entire genre away from it, along with the jazz messengers, Hmm. Art Blakey, Horace Silver, the the jazz messengers were essentially some sort of, you know, some sort of glee club. They were essentially a freaking glee club of jazz musicians who used to just come in and out of them. Like mm-hmm. Lee Morgan would just stop by and say, well, hey, you know, I'm just going to do a solo right here <laughs> with, with my good friend Clifford Brown. I'm going to play a song for him called I Remember Clifford, who died. And then, and, and, and the jazz messengers and, and Charles Mingus were able to define an entire genre of hard hardball mm-hmm. based on the early recordings of Miles. So uh, Miles is where everybody eventually looked back to. Red Garland looked back to, uh, looked back to Miles. The Second Sextet, uh, sorry, the Second Great Quintet, they 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 launched all their careers because of Miles. Mm-hmm. And just as quick as he had made it big, just as soon he disappeared until he reemerged with the next stage of jazz that came much later, which was the electronic age and the yeah. fusion age and all of that, which obviously it requires its own episode and its own yeah. stories. But I think that album was a truly defining factor, especially for my hero, mm-hmm. the great John Coltrane.
0: Yeah. You just said that wonderfully well, where, you know, it, it's, it is probably the greatest introductory song to any album where, you know, he takes it off and, drops into the background and it's, it's Coltrane's time to shine, you know, like he, he comes on and he he picks it up. And that's, that's a, I want to say a very Western idea where individualism and self-expression is, is of uh, utmost importance and, uh, and a lot of emphasis is placed on it. And this is especially seen in jazz where, you know, everyone's playing together and like one guy picks it off and everyone just drops off in the background that they're, they're supporting him. They're like playing cards for him and they're like, you know, encouraging him to go on and do his thing and go on his journey. And then he comes off and like you know, the other trumpeter picks up and the bassist picks up. Well, I wanted to say it was a very Western idea, but then suddenly it struck me that maybe it's also prevalent in Indian classical music. Hindustani and Carnatic music also have these themes where like solos and then he drops back and there are the other, other other musician picks up but it's a very profound idea of now it's your time to shine you do it and everyone gets a chance and then everyone gets back together it's it's union and it's individualism it's it's just a beautiful it's art man it's it's it was the classic
1: it was the classic paradigm of any kind of jam session jazz was basically in the 50s jazz was essentially every jam band musician kind of letting the world know yo. You know what, you know what we do when we sit in those bars late at night after everybody goes home? Yes.
0: This is the shit we do. <laughs> exactly. This is the shit we do. Yes. You know,
1: and and at that time, by that time, things had bifurcated so much, especially in the 60s, where you had now you had this entire genre of cool jazz, you had bebop, you had hard bop. Suddenly Miles and Coltrane had gone eclectic. Mm-hmm. Right. Probably because of the heroin addiction, but probably just because it fueled their own creativity, and they created free and modal scapes of jazz. And yeah. I think when I talk about John Coltrane uh, in the in the next section, I would be able to I, I would be able to expand more upon his individual journey and how it single handedly changed jazz forever. Because see, now at this point of time in the late, in the late fifties, towards the early and mid sixties, everybody had their favorite version of jazz. Okay, right. so you had people who would prefer vocal style, so they would obviously go back to Billie Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald or Louis Armstrong, you know, going to that easy going, <says> which was just clearly partially based into L bar blues. Then you had people who were like, Human versions of cocaine who would prefer like the fast-paced jumps and beats, which were brought to, to great fame by Charlie Parker, the great bird. Or you had people who wanted curiosity, they wanted pace, but not all the time. And they preferred cool, cool. they preferred modal. So they would like people such as co they would yeah. like people such as Miles, they would be, they would like people such as Monk, who uh, difficult to follow at times, but Incredible when you took the time to understand where the purpose of the music was coming from, you know, so everybody had their own flavor. And for those who did not understand any of this, they could just pick up a record by say Lee Morgan or Ben Webster or Coleman Hawkins his really good friend or Dexter Gordon, or Hank Mobley or Zoot Sims or Al Cohn. This was the age of the sax player. This was the age where the sax player was whom everybody looked to to lead the band. Mm. Often, uh, often nobody would pay attention to the work of great, great jazz bassists such as uh, Mingus or such as Paul Chambers because they did not have such a central role in the initial uh, rather birthing of new songs. But they were the ones who kept Tone. They were the ones who kept rhythm. They were the ones who encouraged transition. People mm-hmm. like Jimmy uh, Cobb on the drums. Yeah. People, uh, people who were part of John Coltrane's uh, famous quartet. You know, when he, when he was finally able to get Elvin Jones to play along with him, mm-hmm. who was able to understand him a lot better. So it, it was these people kind of these people kind of inspired a whole other movement. As if all of this wasn't enough, Coltrane's major changes in his life which then uh, which then brought about the spirituality form of music in jazz and kind of gave gave exploration to free jazz inspired a whole new movement which was then taken forward by people uh, from the vanguard age like Eric Dolphy or Sun Ra Mm. you know and and that's that's its whole other discussion so all of a sudden jazz was no longer just a pigeonhole jazz was an umbrella Mm. now that umbrella is just a huge ass canopy, getting bigger <laughs> and bigger every day. Yeah, I think we should we should probably move on to talking about our favorite jazz musicians and and what 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 prompted their major contributions into defining this form of music and defining generations to come and even society.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna, like I said, I already mentioned it, that you know how much I love Coltrane. We've talked about this before. I I fucking love him to bits. He's just, I think he's like, if I have to talk about instrumental mastery and like being a virtuoso, it's hard to get past him, but purely because of the influence he's had and the musical frontiers that he opened. I think I have to go with Django Reinhardt because Django Reinhardt was a gypsy. He was, he was born into a, a gypsy caravan where they used to travel around these rural places and music was in his blood. Like his, mo- his mother was a musician. You can draw a lot of parallels between beautiful parallels between how the rhythm was in his blood because of the, the riding of the horse had a rhythm in it because of all that instilled in him. But. His story is just so incredible. He absconded with his wife at the age of 17, I guess. Mm-hmm. At the age of 18, he was, his wife was uh, making these artificial flowers out of celluloid. And by accident, Django just flips a candle in the caravan and the celluloid, which was highly flammable, burns the whole caravan down. He almost dies. But he loses uh, three fingers on his left hand, his playing hand, which is basically the thumb, the ring finger and the small finger. So he had two fingers on his fucking left hand, man. And just the will to go on and to create. He, I believe, is solely the creator of the genre of jazz called gypsy jazz or like some Romani people call jazz. it yeah, some, gypsy jazz. Some people call it like three by four bebop. Some people call it like a bebop waltz. He was the one. He was the guy who who till date inspires musicians to do musicians to do amazing things. And as someone who has a certain affinity towards guitar, I think he's just an exceptional talent, a generational talent. And just purely because of his influence in creating the new genre of music called uh, gypsy jazz, which also happens to be one of my favorite kinds of music and jazz, I would go with Django Reinhardt and his collaboration with one of the great violinists of the time, Stefan Grappelli, and how they... They were the ones they inspired touring around places and to get jazz more into the mainstream, and how and how even people in France, and because he was French and and it started to spread more in Europe because of him. I think surely because of the influence all over the world, I would go with Django Reinhardt as my favorite. It's curious,
1: it's curious that 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 you know that an art form that was so quintessentially American, Mm -hmm. um, was mastered. Despite adversity by a romani Belgian frenchy yeah. uh, who who possibly in many different ways not 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 if if not single handedly then at least at least through majority of his contribution mm-hmm. was able to bring across jazz across the pond to europe and 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 one must understand that jazz was competing very heavily with other art forms by the 60s, by the 70s in in, in the United States but in Europe in Europe it has never ever faced a setback Mm -hmm. in Europe, in Central Europe, in Western Europe, jazz is beloved jazz has monuments named for it, jazz has stalwarts and stalwarts of academies and clubs and everything named for it and undoubtedly it was this it was this nomadic man who overcame the loss of his fingers mm-hmm. to still become one of the most transformative composers and musicians to bring it about to that level who was able to who was able to pick up the pieces even after the after the world wars and just Reform his quintet again and just pick up where he left off. You know, it was it was incredible what he managed to do. He was able to influence uh, so many other, so so many other musicians. The Duke would always speak very highly of him, mm-hmm. um, and 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 he was apparently he was also a very, he was a very, he was a very kind-hearted and soft-spoken man. You know, there are some interviews which I've uh, which I've read the transcripts of, but these, you know, where these old, uh, you know, these old musicians used to say. You never knew it was Django until you saw that mustache and that curved back hair. But then when he started playing, you knew that was him. That was, he, he could, he could just switch between all of these harmonics in such an effortless fashion. I believe Wes Montgomery, Pat Metheny, all of these jazz guitarists would not have been able to discover what they were capable of. Yeah. If they didn't have the doors
0: that were opened for them by Mr. Reinhardt himself, yeah. It was a hard call, you know, like because there's so many, man. Like like I said, we've discussed so much about Miles, and it's hard to go past Miles and Coltrane, but and, and one of my favorite quotes in jazz music is by Miles. I think uh it was Herbie Hancock who was who was playing with Miles and he just happened to play the wrong chord at one point and miles stops for a second he just stops for two seconds and he goes on and he corrects the card that herbie played wrong herbie was just amazed he he stopped playing for like a minute or so and just was awestruck by how miles transitioned that and miles said something very profound in an interview that i was listening to he said there are no wrong notes in music or in jazz and the you know note notes. the note that you think the note next to the one you think is bad corrects the one in front of it and that's just so profound that's that's fucking life explained that's it you know it's all about okay you make mistakes but it's about forgiving that mistake and and trying to improve on yourself and 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 correcting the mistake that you've made so I just want to naming, an entire, naming exactly. an entire
1: philosophy of exactly. life. Exactly, exactly. So I, I based on to... the concept of a freaking blue note. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to point out that there were uh, there were it was a really tough pick for me to pick Django, but uh, yeah, up to you now. I I know who your pick is. It's John Coltrane, and it's he is my close second, third, but but yeah, go ahead.
1: See. Uh, you this guy he it's easy for us to forget the humble beginnings that you know the co train came from and everything that he achieved in his criminally short career i mean this guy was born in the middle mm-hmm. of prohibition he was born a few years before the great depression his earliest interaction with music was when he went was when he used to play the horns in in, in school and then, and you know, he picked up the saxophone, but I guess he needed some sort of stability in his life. And that's probably why he went to the, uh, you know, he went to the Navy. I, I guess, you know, it was after his return, after his, re- after his return from, you know, from, from his naval service, that when people like, you know, like Ben Webster and Coleman Hawkins, the two great buddies of the 40s were coming up, that, that, that he truly started to find his own voice. And I think... Just like with kind of blue, blue note records and chess records had a huge amount to do with this. One man who possibly completely brought out the best in John Coltrane, not a musician, not Miles Davis, was the sound engineer Rudy Van Gelder. Mm. Rudy Van Gelder was able to sit with John in a studio and just get something incredible out of him. I have read pages and pages of uh, memoirs of John, and I think every he was as much an expression of himself as he was an expression of everybody else around him, you know, I mean, he, he was plagued by his, by his addiction to heroin in his early years, but they were also some of his most pioneering years. I mean, he spent he spent, spent his breaking years just before kind of blooped, recording albums with Thelonious Monk, uh, recording albums with uh, Duke Ellington. There's the Duke Ellington and John Coltrane duo album, the, uh, the Monk and Coltrane album, which are both... Incredible! They have some fantastic pieces. Like the Duke album has has a piece called "In a Sentimental Mood," which is mm. now perhaps one of the greatest jazz standards of all time. Um, Monk's Dream Monk's is dream. perhaps best and best captured in the Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane album. But I think he was kind of blue that that completely changed him because Miles was able to capture everything mm. that was John Coltrane and. Unfortunately, his 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 relationship with, with, with Naima had already been deteriorating by that time, his first wife. But it was not like he didn't love her. It was, it was not that he was intentionally abusive to her or anything. It's just that he was in such a dark place in his life personally that he couldn't express the feelings that he really wanted to. And the only thing that made sense was the music. I think... Uh, when when he finally when he finally split apart from Naïma, a major change came in his life. Not before he recorded so many albums, like uh, or, you know all, all all the albums that he recorded as collaborations. Like for example, uh, you know the album that he recorded with uh, Tommy Flanagan and, Bur- and Kenny Burrell, which is called The Cats. Or the, you know, the albums that he recorded, the you know, the cool albums and the ballad albums that he recorded with jazz singer Johnny Hartman, which songs like Lush Life and My One and Only Love. These are hallmarks into the idea of what a ballad player like John could bring about. He was able to play these extremely complex notes in extremely fast and complex modes. But he knew how to slow it down better than anybody else. You know, I mean, he could, he could, he could just sit in with the Red Garland trio with Red Garland, Art Taylor and, um, and Paul Chambers and, and just come up with an album like Training In or, or the Red Garland Trio with, with John Coltrane or albums such as The Last Train, Dakar, Kenny Burrell and John Coltrane, Set in the Bass, Standard Coltrane, Black Pearl, Stardust, Bahia, all of these albums. And now we're not even we're, we're not even beginning to talk about the Blue Note albums that, that, that he made, like stuff like Soul Train or Blue Train. These were each of them were their own story. Mm-hmm. Each of them were their own unique form of artistic expression. And whether he collaborated with people like Lee Morgan or Paul Chambers or Curtis Fuller or or people like you know like Red Garland or people like uh, Jimmy Cobb, everybody was able to influence him in a very unique way. Freddie Hubbard used to speak so highly of John that he he always said that that there were two that there were two John trains. There was the John Coltrane that everybody knew before Giant Steps. And then there's the John Coltrane that everybody knew after Giant Steps. Because 1959, this guy was just coming off the hot success of Kind of Blue. Mm-hmm. And he brings a whole new dimension to the meaning of what it is to play jumping through modes. Rather than just jumping through chords. Phrasing did not make any sense anymore because it was too too mainstream for John Coltrane. Oh, no, big deal. Suddenly, Atlantic Records just swoops in and picks him up because, you know, I mean, uh, at at that time, Miles' contract with, with John was just about to come to an end. He was on his way out of the quintet because I think he was ready. He was finally ready to explore his own sound Completely and not just, you know, not just as a participant in in other great musicians' albums, but he wanted to double down on. soul, the and then I think one of his greatest albums that he made was Giant Steps because it features one of the most difficult songs that anybody who has to transcribe in jazz learns. They call it like the breaking in. Mm-hmm. The making your bones as a jazz musician, if you can transcribe to giant steps, the, 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 the that, that, that song is so complicated and, and its phrasing is so unique. And as if to mock it with with so much pure emotion and, and, and love that eschews out of it comes naima. And you you could always feel the regret. In his in his horn, when when you could hear the intonations of Naïma, every performance, every live performance of Naïma was uniquely dif- was, was very unique. His performances in Belgium later on, when he when he played Naïma, were very different from his performances in the U.S. when he played Naïma, because every time he thought of her with something else, he was he was going through a very dark phase in his life, and then and then things changed. Alice walked into his life, and. This was an accomplished pianist, a, a great musician in her own right, and I, I, I guess the romance was just a whirlwind. It was, it, it, it was just the right fit. Their children would later on continue to become stalwarts of their own, such as Ravi, and it's it's just they they made something else. Alice made him connect with a much more fundamental aspect of his being, an aspect that 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 Prestige Records had not been able to bring about by then, Blue Note hadn't been able to bring about by then, Atlantic hadn't been able to bring about by then. He started he 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 knew that he had to get over his addiction and and his he found spirituality as a savior for him from addiction. He wasn't a very religious man. He was a very spiritual man. Mm-hmm. He 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 took influences from Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, uh, he, he took influences from even Zoroastrianism, uh, you, know, you know, the religion of the Parsis. He, he took influences from all of these and he started, to, he started to explore a whole different side of himself. And those years when, when he was with Impulse Records, he, he again started working with Rudy Van Gelder who had already recorded with him, you know, in Prestige Records. So he had already reached a level of comfort. And that was when he was able to form his great, great classic quartet. This was when he was able to truly refine his sound, when he was able to lock down um, McCoy Tyner, uh, Jimmy Garrison, and Elvin Jones you know he started making standards and he transformed one of roger and hammerstein's great songs my favorite things into something completely different on the soprano and sopranino saxophones but nothing defines coltrane even even his even his subsequent albums until his death in 1967 all his avant-garde albums all of his spiritual albums none of them could come close to an incredible unparalleled four-part suite the suite that literally was so good it was so ethereal it was so unique it was so it it was so awakening that it inspired its own freaking religion (laughs) the church of saint Coltrane. i am of course speaking about acknowledgement Uh about psalms about, 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 about acknowledgement, about Psalms, about, about those four great, beautiful tracks, which in, in, in many ways, acknowledgement, resolution, you know, pursuance and psalm were able to characterize all the different phases of his turmoil to together be known as his his his, his his affection for his spirituality, his affection for life itself, his affection for his wife, his children, both, both, both from his previous wife and his current wife, and his, his, his various bonds that he had made, um, you know, throughout his time alive. He came to have a new appreciation for life, which he has written about uh, before, and that's why he called the album, A Love Supreme. Because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It is the only album in which you hear his voice. That that spiritual chant, "A Love Supreme," mm-hmm. "A Love Supreme." It it just it sounded so full. McCoy Tyner was able to bring something so surreal onto the piano. Later on, uh, you know, Tyner used to talk about it very heavily in in how the album ended up changing his life. I think no other, no other, no other period could. could Come anywhere close to it. I think the last two, the last two or three years of his life, uh, when he started uh, you know, when he started experimenting with acid, that's probably when he started making all the avant-garde stuff. Um, his 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 two recordings at Newport, his his recordings with the quartet and the Village Vanguard are priceless. You see these alternative, these alternative forms of songs that he had recorded over ages, uh, the pre Miles and post Miles era. Each of them contributed to the legend of John Coltrane and look at whom he inspired. He inspired people across genres. He inspired people across, across instruments. He inspired miles to keep going. Mm-hmm. He inspired, he inspired Alice. He inspired Freddie Hubbard, Herbie Hancock, every single great jazz musician that came after him always, always paid tribute to him. And today, Today, we have an incredible saxophonist who takes forward his legacy in a way that nobody else I can believe would even come close to doing so. A man who admires Coltrane's free jazz and avant-garde styles as much as he, as he, as he appreciates his modal jazz style and his, and his bebop and cool jazz style. I am, of course, referring to Kamasi Washington. It nobody nobody's legacy sustained so long, and tends to show its hints in other musicians, as Coltrane's did. It, there is there is a reason that there are people who worship him yeah. that literally they, worship. Him. They didn't treat him like literally worship him. They they you know they didn't treat him like he was a god. You know they they didn't treat him like he was Jesus mm. or or Muhammad. They knew what his flaws were. They knew that he was trying to discover his own awakening. Mm. They knew that the greatest hallmark of Train was forgiveness and redemption. And that is the legacy that he leaves behind. A legacy that genius can never, ever truly encompass that even his his liver cancer or his cirrhotic liver uh, and and that which contributed to his early death could not undo because he left behind something so incredible. He, he, he He had by that time left behind a legacy on three different types of saxophones on an alto, a tenor most notably, and even a soprano sax, whilst leaving immense legacies behind even on the clarinet. That huge spiritual awakening not only changed his life, I sincerely believe it changed jazz forever. Mm -hmm. And that is why he remains my favorite jazz musician of all time. There's nobody whom I connect to uh, deeper and I connect to John Coltrane uh, when it comes to jazz. And every album of his or every album on which he has featured they all tell me a different story. He tells me a different story. Yeah. He is my greatest strength and inspiration when it comes to following one's dreams and 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 getting out of the well that one may sometimes find themselves falling deep into. Because if anybody could do it, it was him and he did it till the very end at the Village Vanguard again and again.
0: Man. Karen Bro, you just played fantastically well, man. Really it was wonderful, man. For all the listeners out there, if if you ever want
1: to, if you ever want to get a hint into what he was like as a human being and to what his music was, watch the documentary "Chasing Train." Denzel Washington reads out the lines that John Coltrane wrote in his in his memoirs, and there are there are interviews with great 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 saxophonists such as Sonny Rollins, the last of his great generation, uh, people like Freddie Hubbard and and others who who gave great reverence to John whilst not leaving anything behind in what they told about his life. If people could be a bit more embracing of their own genius and use it in a way to convey something more meaningful about themselves like John did, then I think humanity still has a lot more hope for the future.
0: Of course, man. Karan, it was wonderful having you. And, and, I could not ask for a better person to have a conversation with about jazz and music than you. And, and I believe it was, it was fantastic. I feel so good. And uh, yeah, thank you, man. Thank you. And I think we both shared, I think this was when we were in Hyderabad we were talking and we both shared kind of a dream that we had that you know far away in the future that one day we would have our own jazz bar and have like our own our own manage our own little jazz place where we could have musicians come over and have friends be around friends and have make wonderful memories and interact with wonderful people and I hope that one day our dreams come true and yes to that man Cheers. Cheers, Karin. Thank you. Cheers to that. Cheers to you. Thank you, brother. You have a wonderful day. And thank you. Thank you for everything. See you, bro.